Thank you, Sam. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this piece of your word, look into our hearts and lead us on in our discipleship. Amen. Now, over the uh, last month, we've had a kind of bubbling theme through our sermons and our services, and I thought this being the last Sunday in January, I would continue that theme. It's a theme about the call of God and the offer of God to sustain us and guide us throughout our lives, but basically to say to us, I want to use you. And so we turn this morning to this passage in Luke, which is one of several stories in the scriptures, particularly in the Gospels, about Jesus calling his disciples. Uh, One of my colleagues, uh, when I was teaching, used to wear uh, multifocal glasses. And when he was preaching, he used to take them on and off. I know I do that a bit nowadays. Uh, And uh, one time, one of our students said to him, Cyril, why do you do that? He said, well... The top part is for seeing into the long distance, and the bottom part is for looking very precisely at the reading, and the middle part is for looking straight through you lot. (laughs) And we look at this passage this morning, we'll look at it from a, a long distance, very briefly, the overall context, and then sometimes quite precisely about what it might be saying to us. But we need to remember that every time we study the Word of God, the Spirit is studying us. This is not a one-sided activity. We don't dispassionately look at this thing and say, oh yes, it's good or it's bad or it's indifferent. What actually happens when you study the Word is that the Word studies you. And therefore, you might find that you're being seen right through this morning. Luke sets this story in the context of the popularity of Jesus. His ministry is exploding in the early uh, chapters of of Luke. And now he's so popular that basically as he stands there on the side of the lake, people are crowding around so much that he, he needs to almost get off the beach and get somewhere slightly elevated or different to be able to, to speak. And uh, although there's no discourse, no conversation, very little of it in this passage in Luke, it's quite clear that what Jesus has done is go up to Peter and say, can I borrow your boat? In effect, Peter, can I use you, who you are and what you possess and what you know and what you love, can I occupy it? Will you loan it to me? Will you give it to me for my use? Uh, During the years that uh, I was involved in the candidating of ministers, and uh, one or two members of our congregation are now involved in that, one of the, the biggest things that I fought against and the most common misunderstanding was that when people felt they were called by God into ordained ministry, They felt like they almost left behind everything that they'd ever done or known or become competent at or trained at. It was almost like they believed, and sometimes I think the church believed wrongly, uh, 
that when they offered for this new life of ordained ministry, you started off with a clean sweep, and it was as if the 20 or 30 or 40 years prior to that was just sort of wiped out. Nothing could be further from the truth about the call of God upon our lives. God uses every bit. In fact, there are some things, often the most damaging and often the most disturbing or at the time upsetting times of our life, where we think that's no use to God whatsoever. It's not profitable. It's taken me further away. I don't feel I'm pursuing in faith. And then all of a sudden, X time later, you suddenly realize that God says, I'm going to use that too. That patience you had to build up when? The empathy that you've got with a person in a time of absolute desolation because do you remember that time when you were? Can I borrow not just you, can I borrow your boat and everything in it and everything it does and everything it represents? You see, if God didn't want in some senses you as you, to declare his love, he'd have just sent everybody X copies of the same DVD, told us to go home and put it in, listen to the same message. Can I use your boat? Can I stand in you, in what's yours, and use it as the place from which I declare my message of love and salvation? Disciples usually choose their rabbis. Jesus chooses his disciples. Can he borrow your boat? I, I want you to note that Jesus calls people to follow him at the most inappropriate times. Thinking back again to a number of conversations about people offering for ordained ministry, and I'm not really talking about that this morning, but it's clearly in my head for some reason. Another of the things that people permanently said to us was, I've been wrestling with this call for 5, 10, 15, 20, more years. And now it's become irresistible. And sometimes, because I'm an old cynic, as you know, I sort of think to myself, well, why didn't you offer 10 or 15 years ago? Was it because you wanted to get rich? Are you waiting for your pension? I mean, what, what, what is it? And they'd say to you sometimes like, something like this, well, I just didn't feel the time was right. And I understand. I'm, I'm being silly. I'm being flippant. But the time that Jesus calls you is the right time to be called. When Jesus says to Simon, can I use your boat? And then after he's finished preaching, he says, let's go fishing. It's the middle of the day. The middle of the day is not the time to go fishing. To all intents and purposes, it's a rubbish time. It's a time when they're not ready. It's a time when you wouldn't expect them to be ready. It's a time for mending nets, sat there on the beach. It's a time for 
getting married or child raising or job hunting or career chasing or another 101 quite legitimate things to do. And some of us might be wrestling with a call from God, not necessarily into ordained ministry, but for some of us it might be that. And what the passage says to us just at this moment is, just be very careful about telling God when it's the wrong time. Now, God doesn't blast us out of existence. God is not evil, God cannot be evil about a sense of call and an invitation to us to follow. But that doesn't mean that we turn around and treat God like a pet. No, it's not the right time. No, just be quiet, go away for another five years. I need to do this. We need to realize within the call of God upon our lives in Christ what Amos discovered and says so eloquently in the Old Testament, the lion has roared. Who can be but obey? I want you to note too that the Jesus who calls Peter in this story in Luke is clearly interested in the whole of Peter's life, not just what you might call the religious bits. Peter's going to have a, a key place in the story of Jesus' ministry on earth. Peter's going to become the founder of the church in Christ's name. He's a hugely important person. There's going to be times where he misunderstands. There's going to be times when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. There's going to be times where Jesus changes Peter's name because it's, he can see the transitions that Peter will go through. And therefore, it's tempting for us to think that when Jesus calls Peter or calls us or calls anybody else, really what God is interested in is what can we do? Well, of course, the, he, would, he would call so-and-so because, well, he's bright, isn't he? And he would call such-and-such such because, well, she's so gentle and she's so calm. He wouldn't call me because I fly off the handle and I've got nothing to say and I'm not very good at these sort of things. The God who calls isn't calling you because you're necessarily good at everything already. The God who calls is calling you because he loves you and he wants to use it all and he's interested in the whole of your life. What you have been, what you are, and with his guidance and continual infilling, what you can be. So for Peter, according to Luke, by the time you get to chapter 5, Jesus has already healed Peter's mother-in-law. He's already visited his home several times. He clearly knows the family. Jesus has dealt with the family situation. Jesus is there, right next to where Peter works, and out of the, a considerable amount of knowledge, I think, rather than just this is the first time they ever met. Jesus comes again onto the beach, which he might have done dozens of times before this account, and says, can I borrow your boat? Now are we going to go fishing? Peter 
I want all of you because I'm interested in all of it. In being called to follow Jesus, it doesn't mean that Jesus' only interest in us, therefore, is the ministry, usually singular, to which we think we're called. As if our only worth to him is that we do it or we don't do it. Let me tell you, ministers of religion are the worst people in the world about this kind of thing. Is a preacher who can't preach is a preacher? Answer, yes. They're just not preaching. And if that's a general truth, if that is how Jesus deals with his disciples and you as one of them, then you and me as Christians must not limit our notion of our Christian ministry to the religious bits that we think we can be useful to God about. We proclaim the whole gospel in relation to the whole of life. That's why the church rightly assists and sometimes takes a lead in a whole variety of ministries about homelessness, about prostitution, about prisons work, about a thousand and one other things. Because God collects it all. Just one or two more things about this, this passage. Go out into the deeper waters, says Peter, or says Jesus to Peter. Uh, there's that wonderful story, I love it, of a, a man who is drowning. He's in the water and he's splashing around and he's gurgling, help me, help me, he cries. And suddenly there's a splash beside him and he flings his arm around the person who's come in the water next to him. Thank you, thank you, he says, you've come to rescue me. No, blubs the other person. I can't swim either. I just thought you might like some company. <laughs> That's not quite what I mean when I urge us to consider what it might mean to go out in the boat in which there is Jesus and in which we are and go beyond our depths. By deeper waters, I mean living in relation to the call of God upon our lives so that we're in a position sometimes where we can't touch the bottom. To trust beyond what we can actually see. To not play it safe. And to know that it's all right, ultimately, that we can't quite touch the bottom. To not be content playing around in the shallows because you never quite know, mixing metaphors, whether you can truly swim until you get out of your depth. And sometimes we who have been disciples of Christ for years and years and years, and I'm as bad at this as anybody else, we want to know and we want to be in control of what it is to follow Christ. We want to put our discipleship and our following of Jesus in a box that says, got it taped, understood, in a box, safe, parametered. You see, it's not like that because when you're called to follow Jesus, the first thing you learn is you don't call the shots. 
John Robinson wrote many, many years ago a very famous book, and in it there were many famous lines, but one of them I underlined when I read it was this. Christians are called to be Christ's servants. And the first rule of a servant, servant is that they, do not, they live in someone else's house. You don't progress in obedience or discipleship by agreeing with the bits of the call of God that you think you can touch the ground about. In fact, sometimes you only grow as a Christian when you sort of, to use again another image, take that leap of faith. I believe that you'll catch me. I believe ultimately there will be ground underneath me. And moving towards a close, the other thing I notice in this passage, which is a sort of half exposition sermon, if you like, uh, is that clearly being a follower of Jesus, and even when you loan Jesus your boat and say it's yours, use it. You're not called to be a one-person band. When uh, Caroline Wozniacki yesterday, so emotional, won the Australian Open Women's Singles, she did what so many champions do. doesn't matter whether it's snooker or whatever it is. She ran in a, an auditorium of several thousand people straight to the place where her father and her fiancé and her trainer were, and she tried vainly to get up the ten feet, and she was just saying things to them. And the commentator, commentating on that part, said, these successes are never achieved alone. And so it is in Christian discipleship. One of the most common weaknesses of people who are most definite that they have a call from God is that fundamentally they think it's all down to them. They say to other people, it's all right, I can do that, I'm multi-gifted, I don't need you, you just sit over there. And what's worse, the people who really sometimes feel that they're special and that they've got a special gift from God, not only say that to other people in the church, they say it to God. I think I'll be all right on my own, God. You just look after somebody else. I'm sure there's lots of people in the world you ought to be looking after. I'll get on with your work here. I'll call you if I need you. So notice here in this passage that once they are about in obedience to the Lord and they've caught fish, this symbolism of what's going to be at the end of the passage I know you've been catching fish, but now your job is to come with me and catch people. How can they not see, them, see the message when what's happened in front of them is that when I obey him, look what happens. And the very first thing that we're told is that Peter in his boat turns round and basically gesticulates to two people who are also going to become quite important in the gospel story and you can almost hear it say, hey, mates, mates, come over here quick. Just look at this. Disciples together involved in the fruit of being obedient to Jesus. 
Do you know that Jesus rarely calls us into any singular ministry at all? Does Jesus choose Peter and James and John, three individuals? Yeah, of course he does. Or does he call what you might call Galilee Fisherman Inc.? And note, just by the by, as we move to a close, that it's this small group within the larger group of disciples who are there at so many key points in the life of Jesus. But they're still together. Jesus calls you to follow. It doesn't mean he calls you on your own. So how do you respond to the fact that God might be continuing to work in your life? A person who spent several years in my office, which is one of the reasons I like my office, was Donald English, who to me was a, uh, a mentor many years ago. And he used to say several things repeatedly because they bore repetition. He used to say, do you know when anybody says to you, I was blessed by that, or thank you for doing that. What they're really saying is, I recognize, I see that the Spirit is alive and at work in you. So be encouraged. So how do you respond to the fact that God might be working in your life? How do you respond to the fact that God's just sort of warming up and keeps saying to you, annoyingly and wondrously, I've got the stern, or I've got the anchor. How about the rest of the boat? Here in this story, we see Peter's response to the miraculous catch of fish, and it's a wonderful response for would-be disciples. You see, one response could have been for Peter to leap off the boat, go to the side, and say to the crowd, and there'll still be some of them about, did you see that? I knew there was going to be a huge shoal of fish there. You see, if you obey what he tells you to do, just look what happens. We could have moved straight into Pentecost at that moment. And what Peter does is a very much more deeper and authentic response. We're told he clings to the knees of Jesus. In other words, he puts his arm around his legs and says, go away from me, Lord. Have you ever tried wrapping your arms around somebody's legs and telling them to go away? And Jesus doesn't go away. What he says is, do not be afraid. Because Jesus doesn't always do what you ask him to do. What he does is he does what's right. Peter does not say, why don't I know where the fish were? I should become a better fisherman. Peter's skills are not at doubt here. It's the shape of his life that Jesus wants. And so the passage that we looked at ends in the way that so many early passages of all four Gospels do. Follow me, says Jesus. Do you know, follow me is not a children's party game. 
It combines what you used to do and what you do now and what if you're going to follow Christ and you're going to offer him the whole boat, the whole kit and caboodle, what you can do. There's always continuity and discontinuity with God's dealings with us. And follow me is not follow my rules, follow the Ten Commandments, follow the traditions of Methodism, follow the Wesleyan way of doing this. It starts then as it starts now as it starts today. Follow me. The relationship with a person who knows all about you, knows what you can do and what you can't do, knows the timings and the seasons of your life, and still says to each one of them, one of us, can I borrow, can I use, can I have you and your boat and everything you bring with you? Who will hear the call of Christ today? to follow and offer the next stage of discipleship. Amen. So we sing as a, an act of response, what shall I do my God to love?